Welcome to the Running Explained podcast. I'm Elizabeth, a marathoner, running coach, and answer seeker. When I became a new runner at the age of 29, I had so many questions, but I had no idea where to go for answers. So with Running Explained, I'm here to answer all your running questions to help make you a better, smarter, faster runner. There's no question too simple and no topic too complex. So let's get started. Hey everyone, welcome to the weekly Q&A with Running Explained. I am Elizabeth. I'm so happy that you're here. And I have to say, as much as I love doing these solo episodes, these Q&As, I think I love my interview episodes even more. Those come out every Tuesday. Everyone that I've done so far has been just like a world of knowledge coming out my face. I have learned so much, even things that I thought that I knew, like I was always more to know, which is what I keep saying. There's always more to know. So a quick note before we start this q and I got a lot of questions this week about injuries, like more than normal. Um, and I am not a physical therapist. While I, I do have some knowledge of common running injuries, I'm going to do all of you a huge favor and have a physical therapist on an upcoming episode, Dr. Ellie Somers. She's going to come on and we're going to talk about common running injuries. So you can listen to that episode, see if one of the injuries that we we are talking about is the one that you might be experiencing. We'll talk a bit about how each one's caused and how to address each one as well as when it's time to see a doctor rather than just trying to treat it at home. So that is coming up to that end. I will no longer be accepting questions about injuries um, unless it's really, truly bizarre. But in general, I am not going to be talking or answering questions about injuries going forward because I am going to be providing an additional resource for you. I would also like to say, I feel like somebody asked me a question this week that I said I would include in the podcast, and I feel like I misplaced that question. So if I said to you that I was going to answer your question in this week's podcast, and yet you do not hear your question answered today, I sincerely apologize. Please DM me. You will get like double the explanation next week. So with that, we're just going to dive right in. Well, we're just going to dive right in after three-minute intro. We're going to dive right in to the questions for this week. The first question this week is about whether an ice bath or an Epsom salt bath is better for recovery. You're going to take a bath after your run. Which Should you take an ice bath or should you take a hot Epsom salt bath? Well, one is not better than the other because they're actually like polar opposites. They do completely different things. Cold is a vasoconstrictor and heat is a vasodilator. And all that means is that cold temperatures ice baths, cryotherapy, just standing outside naked in the snow, constricts your blood vessels. It causes them to shrink because in response to cold, your body goes into a bit of a protective mode, right? And uh, it, it, it concentrates your blood back where you need it near the core of your body. And so it, it constricts your in, you know, vasovascular. All that means is talking about your veins and your capillaries and your arteries. So Cold is a vasoconstrictor and heat is a vasodilator opposite. It opens up your blood vessels, causes them to expand. And this can do a couple of different things, but most primarily it helps bring blood to areas of your body, which can then sweat from, right? So your sweat, a lot of the, the fluid that makes up your sweat actually comes from your blood plasma, interestingly enough. So anyways, ice bath, vasoconstrictor, heat bath, vasodilator, and an Epsom salt bath in particular, not just a hot bath, an Epsom salt bath, Epsom salts, 
are a magnesium sulfide, uh, magnesium sulfate, one of the sulf somethings. It's those, you know, crystals or flakes. Magnesium is actually very good for your muscles, but there is some debate over whether you can actually absorb magnesium through your skin or if you're just sitting in a nice hot bath of placebo effect, which is fine. I mean, hot baths can be fantastic. Um, if you really want the benefits of magnesium, there are myriad benefits of magnesium. You should probably take a supplement or eat a bunch of magnesium-rich food rather than relying on getting your magnesium from your soaking tub. So when is an ice bath good for you versus when is a hot bath or an Epsom salt bath good for you? So it's definitely true that cold reduces inflammation, right? So if you just went on a 20 mile run or had a really, really crazy track workout and you, you know, you did some, you did some damage to your leg muscles in, in that work that you just put in, it would make sense. You think, well, I want to reduce the inflammation. So I'm going to go sit in an ice bath for 15 to 20 minutes to make sure that, you know, I don't experience any inflammation in my muscles and help reduce, you know, any, any muscle damage. Well, first of all, Inflammation is not necessarily a bad thing. There's a reason that inflammation is our body's response to trauma, whether that is, you know, micro trauma going for a run or major trauma, like you break something. It is your body's healing response. Inflammation is not necessarily a bad thing. You should not always try to prevent or reduce all inflammation. Inflammation is a very beneficial healing tool for your body during certain times. Inflammation is not necessarily bad, okay? I will say that based on the research that's available, I would almost say it comes down to personal preference. If you think that taking an ice bath helps you and you feel better after you have one, then you should do that. If you like hot baths after you run, then and it feels good to you, you should do that. Um, there is some evidence that suggests that while ice baths or cryotherapy do reduce that acute inflammation. They actually in, may inhibit the growth of muscle. So like, yeah, you limit the damage that was done, but you have trouble then repairing to the extent that you could have, because like I said, inflammation actually serves a purpose. It's not necessarily a bad thing. And with a heat bath, of course, it's the opposite. You have your vessels stay open, your blood and fluids and everything keeps flowing around your body. That might actually help flush out some of the metabolite waste products, kind of the stuff that cell trash that gets left behind might actually make you feel better in the long run, even though it doesn't necessarily prevent inflammation. That might not be a bad thing. You might feel better after a hot bath. So does it really matter which one is better for recovery? The best bath to take for recovery is the one that you prefer to take. Some people swear by ice baths. Some people swear by Epsom salt baths. That's fine. I mean, I feel like a lot of the recovery process is also mental. So do the one which you feel gives you the most benefit. There really is no right or wrong answer other than please don't give yourself hypothermia and please don't make your bath so hot that you have give yourself blisters. This next question is about marathon training. And this question is, is it better for marathon training to do a straight tempo or are long intervals okay? First, my standard pitch is that your plan should have this very clearly, clearly written out for you. If it's a reputable plan from a reputable source, it should have your workouts detailed for you in the plan or in the book, the plan that comes in, or your coach should tell you exactly how to run these workouts. 
and should even be able to answer the question of why they're important for you. If your plan does not include this kind of information, you should find a different plan. If you are writing a, if you are trying to write a marathon training plan and you do not know the answer to this, um, please stop writing your plan and talk to a running coach about this or buy a book that has a training plan in it. You do not want to F around with marathon training if you don't know what you're doing. People think it's just numbers in a spreadsheet. It is a whole lot more than that. And I just wrote a whole post about finding the right training plan for you. If you are going to be embarking in something as uh, energy, soul, and time sucking as marathon training, you really want to do it correctly. So let's just define for a second the things that we're talking about, right? So tempo and intervals. Tempo, even though a lot of people use the word tempo to describe different things, Tempo was broadly understood to mean a continuous period of fast running. So either most or all of the run is fast running. And usually that is lactate threshold, thereabouts. So faster than marathon pace, slower than 5K pace, and of good the length can vary depending on what you're trying to do and how fit you are and what your whole goal is. But a tempo is a continuous block of running where most or all of the run is made up of that steady state, fast paced running. Intervals, of course, are different. They are intervals of fast running interspersed with periods of rest or recovery. So either, you know, jogging or walking or pure rest. And intervals are typically done at paces faster than tempo paces, though not always. There are a million and one combinations for how you would do an interval workout. But in general, interval means faster than your lactate threshold, shorter, right? So not continuous. So typically intervals are 400 meter, 800 meter, 1200 meter, uh, one mile, and you know, one mile repeats, um, Anything longer than a mile interval, you typically back the pace down because you're starting to get into territory where you're actually should be working at lower paces. It's a very specific reason why you would do like, you know, two mile re or two mile intervals at, you know, your half marathon pace. Like that's just basically a different way of putting together a tempo run if you're unable to run the entire tempo continuously. So which is better for the marathon, which is more efficient, effective, better prepare you for the actual rigors of the marathon, tempos or intervals. I am going to go with tempos. And by that, I specifically mean lactate threshold work. So lactate threshold, as a reminder, it's the physiological point at which lactate, which is a byproduct of energy production in your cells, Lactate begins to accumulate in your cells along with the accompanying hydrogen ions. And the lactate, if, if it's not shuttled out of the cells and used in other places around your body and gotten rid of, it eventually builds and builds and builds and builds. And if it builds up to a enough of a concentration inside your cell, it interferes with your cell's ability to produce more energy. And that's when you start to feel that like crazy burning in your legs and you slow down, even though like you are trying with all your might to keep your legs moving, but your legs like literally won't respond. You may have reached the breaking point of your lactate threshold, but your lactate threshold pace is simply that point at which your lactate begins to build up rather than being dealt with by your body. Lactate actually is kind of cool. As a side note, a lot of people think like lactate, they think lactic acid, they think bad, bad, bad. 
like many things that we are all learning about running and our bodies, just because it's there doesn't necessarily mean it's bad. Lactate is actually very, very useful. And in some situations, your body can use it to make energy, but like that's a whole different discussion. So your lactate threshold is really important in your ability to run a marathon because you are trying to run your marathon as fast as you can without like burning out and slowing down, right? So most people, the average runner runs at a, their marathon pace is like around 80-ish percent, 80 to 85% maybe of their lactate threshold. So they're under their lactate threshold, but like not by a whole lot, right? You are, you're definitely running, you know, faster than your easy pace. You're definitely working, uh, it, you know, but it's, you're not a lactate threshold pace. The fitter that you get, the faster that you get, the closer you can get to working in an effort zone closer to you, closest to your lactate threshold pace. Now, for most people, their lactate threshold pace, their true lactate threshold pace and effort zone is an effort or pace they can sustain for about an hour of running, hard sustained running. For super highly trained runners, that's actually their half marathon pace. Uh, elite runners, I mean, you know, the world half marathon record is just under an hour for men. Um, I have to look it up for women. I should know this, but I don't. So, I mean, so clearly for a very small elite subsection of runners, their lactate threshold is their half marathon pace. Now for the rest of us, our lactate threshold pace is uh, somewhere between our half marathon and our 10K pace, right? So if your all out 10K effort is a 60 minute 10K, then your 10K pace is your lactate threshold pace. So anyways, you can you can see if you, whatever pace you can sustain, like an intense sustained one hour effort, that's your lactate threshold pace. Why does that matter in the marathon when you're not gonna, it's gonna take a lot longer than an hour to run a marathon, right? Like many hours more than an hour. The more work you do at your lactate threshold pace, the more you can move your lactate threshold base pace. You can teach your body to get more efficient at dealing with those increased levels of lactate such that you can actually move your threshold up to a different effort zone. This is really useful in your marathon as well as half marathon and 10K training because this means that the higher your lactate threshold, the faster you can run at your marathon pace while approaching your lactate threshold, right? So I'm gonna, this is not a number, but we're just gonna like pretend that it is. Let's say your lactate threshold is 100. It's not, that's not how you measure lactate threshold. That's not at all how you do it. But let's say that that's how you do measure it. And let's say your lactate threshold is 100. Well, according to our average runner calculations, the average runner, 80 to 85% of their lactate threshold pace is marathon pace. So 80% of 100 is 80, right? So let's, their pace is 80. Again, obviously this is not how we do paces, but we're gonna, I'm gonna show you why this is kind of cool. Let's say through increased work, you go through a training cycle that includes a lot, not too much, of course, or it's possible to do too much lactate threshold work. You still wanna keep your easy running as the majority of your running. But let's say you, you go through a training cycle, which includes a nice dedicated portion of lactate threshold work, you know for a fact your lactate threshold has moved. It has gotten, it has moved up. You've gotten faster at your lactate threshold. You've been able to sustain longer um, time at your lactate threshold pace. All these things you know 
your lactate threshold is better. It's higher than it used to be. And let's say your lactate threshold has changed and now it's 110. Your lactate threshold went from 100 to 110. It increased, right? So if your marathon pace was 80 when your lactate threshold was 100, so it was 80% of your lactate threshold when it was 100, what is it now that your lactate threshold is 110? It's 88. Your lactate threshold pace has helped raise your entire ability to run a marathon at a faster pace than you were able to do because you were able to train in a way that you increased your lactate threshold. You dragged your marathon pace upwards along with it. Now, like I said, your lactate threshold pace, you should not like only focus on increasing your lactate threshold because while having a higher lactate threshold is a benefit for the marathon, there are a bunch of other things that are also super important, like having things like mitochondrial density and capillary density and strong bones and tendons and the ability to be efficient in your um, form and your ability to consume energy. All of these things we could, you can only get from spending a lot of time in your easy running zone. And also not to mention that training for the marathon does require a large volume of miles. And the best way to run a lot more is to run most of those miles easy. So if you asked me if I'm going to include one kind of workout in my marathon training plan, assuming that all the other elements of my plan are 100% squared away, my long runs are set. I know when I'm doing my goal pace, long run workouts. I know when my recovery runs are, I know when my easy runs are, but I only have room for one more workout and no, it can't change from week to week. And yes, I'm being arbitrarily rigid about this. Should I do tempo, AKA lactate threshold runs, or should I do intervals? I would say you should focus on your lactate threshold work. Now you might not be at a place yet where you can run at your lactate threshold pace continuously. You might need to do your lactate threshold in some sort of time-based interval. So that might be something like you run 10 to 15 minutes at your lactate threshold pace, and then you take a three to five minute jog, and then you run three, 10 to 15 minutes, and then you run a three to five minute jogs or something like that. So eventually, and again, that would be the beginning of the plan. And as your plan progressed, you would string together those periods of running into something that is continuous, right? So all the, you're now you're running, you know, seven miles at your lactate threshold pace. And then a couple weeks later, you know, it's at nine miles at your lactate threshold pace, right? So it is progressive and it is cumulative and it is continuous. Um, sorry, to get to that continuous running. So it's not to say that you would necessarily always start doing your tempo runs as continuous runs if you are not capable of doing them that way yet. That's fine. But between the two for marathon training specifically, and you only had one option, I would say you should focus on your lactate threshold first. This next question is strikes an extraordinarily personal note with me because I could have written it. This person asks, can you talk about pace and hills? I live in a pretty hilly area, which makes pace difficult. And actually there's a part two to this question from the same person. Um, but let's focus on this main question right now, pacing in hills. Specifically, this person is talking about how they are, they are having trouble maintaining their paces when they're going up hills and going down hills. Like they're not like, how do I run when it's really, really, really hilly? So I, like I said, can commiserate. I recently moved to an area which is quite hilly. I am dealing with some, some large hills 
um, which I've never had to deal with before, like large hills. And don't come at me, people at altitude in the Rockies. Like, yes, you have mountains, but they have hills and they're serious. So how do you incorporate serious hills or even moderate hills into your training? Because clearly, whenever you go up a hill, your effort increases. And whenever you go down a hill, your effort decreases. The general advice when it comes to hills is that you should run your hills by effort, not by pace. And this applies to many training runs as well as your actual race. So unless you are, let's say just for the purposes of this discussion, let's say you're training for a race that is pancake flat and you live in a pancake flat part of the world. It's like, well, yeah, you should probably always aim to run most of your splits, your paces, pretty even. Like unless you're doing a workout that specifically calls for different paces or you're doing a progression run, if your run says go out there and run seven miles at an easy pace or at a steady state, you know, whatever it is, like, yeah, you should probably aim for pretty even splits. The rest of us who live in areas of the world that have hills do not have the luxury of always living in pancake flat field, which is a blessing and a curse. Hills are really, really, really great for your development as an athlete. They work different parts of your muscles. They work your booty in different ways. Running hills consistently will make you a stronger runner. It absolutely will. But if you run your hills too hard all the time, all of a sudden you're out of that nice, easy zone that we want to be in. Now, you're out on an easy run and you come across a small rise and you you know, you just decide to kind of charge on up it and your hill, your, your heart rate goes up to the 160s and it's there for, you know, 20 or 30 seconds. And then you're, it flattens out and it goes back down. Like, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about consistent changes in elevation or very, very, very uh, long and steep hills that rocket you into a different effort zone for minutes at a time. Hills that are a quarter or a half, a mile or more or longer in a a pitch or a grade that is so steep that you are just all of a sudden in your, you know, up in that lactate threshold zone. You are up in your 5k zone. You are seeing a heart rate on your watch that you don't really see unless you are kicking into the shoot on at the end of a 5k or a 10k, right? Like, oh my gosh, why is my heart rate so high? Hills do that to you. You're fighting against gravity. That's, that's, that's kind of the thing. So it's really important to learn how to run hills by effort. Now, this may mean, and this kind of sucks. I get it. This may mean for some hills on some runs, you may need to back off your pace so much that you are basically doing a brisk hike up the hill. Because if you were running, your heart rate would be too high. Okay. Now, like I said, it's not, you don't have to walk every hill that you come across. If you're, like I said, if you're specifically out on an easy paced run and you come across a hill that is long and or steep, a hill that, you know, if you try to sustain the pace that you're currently running up that hill, it's going to catapult you into a very hard effort zone for minutes at a time. That is when you want to slow down as much as possible to keep your heart rate in that easy effort zone. And yes, that may mean you need to slow to a brisk walk. That's okay. The aerobic development of your running endurance, when we talk about that zone two effort, does not come from the act of running. It's not the running that does that development. And yes, of course, there's our running specific benefits like the impact, right? 
But the aerobic, the purely aerobic benefits you get from running in your zone to effort zone are not from the running. They're from the activity. So yes, theoretically, you can do any activity, any aerobic activity that increases your heart rate into that effort zone and build up your aerobic base that same way. Yeah, you totally could. Cross-country skiing, cycling, elliptical, rowing, whatever. Pick an aerobic activity. If it gets your heart rate into that easy effort zone, usually 130s, 140s for most people, you will get the same aerobic development benefits from any activity that does that as you will from running in your easy effort zone. Yes, and I said there are running specific benefits you get from doing actually running. No, you cannot train for a marathon on the elliptical. You do need to actually spend time literally pounding the pavement. There are benefits you cannot get from other activities that you have to only get through running and actually like the impact, the high impact is one of them, that pounding the pavement. All of those things aside, yes, theoretically, any activity that puts you in that aerobic zone works on your aerobic base. So if you're concerned about not getting the correct easy zone aerobic development, if you have to slow to a walk to keep your heart rate in that zone, the zone is what makes the development, not the act of running. So I would encourage you specifically if you are in a situation where you have large hills on your running routes that you know put you into a high, high heart rate zone for minutes at a time, slow down as much as you can. If you need to go down to a brisk hike or a walk, that is 100% okay. On those easy runs, the only thing we're caring about, the only thing we should be focused on is that aerobic development And then over time, you will end up getting faster and faster in that zone. One day you might be able to run that hill at your easy zone. That would be kind of cool, right? Now, when we're doing workouts, specific hills. So first of all, you know, you should always, this goes back to um, training, you know, training for the race that you're going to run, right? So we do race specific training for a reason. We don't, we don't follow a 5k training plan for a marathon. Like we train race specific training. So we follow a training plan. We do training that is specific to the race we're going to participate in that works the same zones that prepares us for the rigors of that specific distance. But you should also, you should, keyword on should, you also should be training in a way that prepares you for the actual race course that you are going to run. So if you live in Pancake Flatville, and you were going to go run the Mont Blanc Ultra, which has God knows how many thousands of feet of elevation loss and gain, like you were going to need to find a way to add hills to your training because you need to train for those hills. Likewise, there are some major marathons, some some races in the world that are very flat. The Chicago Marathon is very, very flat. Would hills help you in your training? Yes. Should you specifically train to run hills for that marathon? No, because that marathon doesn't have any hills. Do you see what I mean? Research the course that you're going to be running. Research what you're going to be facing on race day. And actually, I love this. If you've read Dina Castor's memoir, Let Your Mind Run, it's phenomenal. You haven't read it, you totally should. One of the things she talked about when she won a bronze medal at the Athens Olympics in 2004 is that when she was doing her marathon buildup for that race, she lived in Northern California, and her coach... And their team and the Olympic training team, they basically figured out the exact elevation profile of the course and found a way in her training, you know, area 
to mimic it like to a T. So she was, she could run parts of the course, the exact, or, you know, mostly, um, the same elevation changes, the same lengths, like, okay, so this seven miles here and then it's rolling Hills. Like, so when she got to the actual race, She'd already run it like a thousand times practically during her training. She was so familiar with how the course was supposed to go. Her body was so prepared to run these hills at that specific time and to have this there and to go down here and then to have this. So, I mean, that's like the ultimate example of being prepared for the course you're going to run. But anybody now can do basic research on the elevation profile of their course that they've signed up to run. And you can tailor your training to be course specific as well. So for example, Boston, the Boston Marathon starts at a downhill and then you get hills later on. Technically, Boston is actually a net downhill elevation course, but there are hills later on, right? So you need to practice not only running downhill, which can be hell on your quads, you need to be practicing how to run hills when your legs are really tired later in the race, those types of things. So If you are running a race that specifically has a lot of hills, um, it might be good to include some hillier uh, routes during some of the workouts that you do. In that case, though, you still kind of want to run by effort because especially when, especially depends on how fast you're running and all of that. But like I said, when we talked about lactate threshold, at some point, it be your body can't go on, right? You stressed it too much. So if you, let's say are doing uh, a marathon pace long run, but you choose a really, really hilly route to do it. And you're not, you're at marathon goal pace, but your effort zone because of the Hills is more like lactate threshold. Well, um, that actually might overtax you and burn you out. And so while you are technically running your marathon goal pace, your effort zone was higher than that. So what should you have done? It, it's, some, it's also good to learn how to run those things by effort. So to keep a, what we call a um, steady effort up the hills and down the hills. So that means your pace might slow, but your effort level will feel the same. So again, like there may be situations in which, you know, that's impossible. Oh, the hills will always feel hard. It's, it's less important to keep your heart rate within a specific zone on during workouts than it is during easy runs. Um, but the F, the principle is still the same, right? So you want to, you want to keep your effort steady on the hills. So that's how you deal with hills in general. Now this person specifically asks, oh, so also kind of going back to that. So this means that, you know, if you live in a, in a place that's constantly hilly up and down, like, um, I don't worry about your pace run by effort, running by effort, learning to run by effort is kind of like the Holy grail of being a runner. And a lot of runners, myself included, I will be completely honest with you struggle with it because we've basically been taught to ignore our internal body cues for so long that getting in touch with how things feel is kind of hard to do. It takes practice, but learning to run by effort is one of the most incredible skills that you will cultivate as a runner. So I would say, honestly, don't worry about your pace. Go out and run by effort. Mostly easy. Run, Walk if you have to, and then throw in some fast running as well. So this, the second part of this person's question, as I probed a little bit more, um, 
basically says, you know, uh, they the beginning of their runs start on a downhill and then it sounds like either it's an out and back or a loop and the end of the run always mm-hmm. ends going uphill. But long story short, I always start out too fast and end up dying at the end. Um, I'm ha- and having trouble slowing down, right? So the intention is always to start slow or to be slower, but it never seems to work out that way. And by the time they get to the end of the run, they're just absolutely dying. Oh my God, I'm dying. So what's going on here? Well, oftentimes we runners think that if you go out and you're, and you start at a certain pace and I just, I, so, I don't know what this is, but I feel like so many runners do it. If you start at a certain pace, well, that's kind of like the pace. Even if you're supposed to be running a recovery run or an easy run or doing something entirely different, um, if your watch says, like, let's say you were supposed to do an easy run and your usual easy pace is like between 10 and 11 minutes per mile, but you head out the door and all of a sudden your watch is nine minutes per mile, it's almost like we are incapable of slowing down, right? Like we see that and it's like, oh, I get this is it. Can't go any slower. This is my pace today. Like that's how it's going to be. Um and so many people do this and slow down. It's okay. Like, first of all, I get it. Downhills, super fun, right? Nice and easy. You feel like a God when you're running downhill and your watch is saying that you're running super fast and it feels easy because you're running downhill and gravity is your best friend. However, this person has obviously acknowledged that what they're doing is detrimental to their running. So let's be honest with ourselves. It's not working for you. You need to slow down. That's okay. How do you slow down? So one of two ways, you can start off slower. You can do things like put a pace, you know, put handcuffs on your pace. Tell yourself you're not allowed to run whatever pace you want down the hill. First of all, no matter who you are, you should never just walk out the door and start sprinting. Even workouts have a warm up period, right? So any run that you do should always start out at an easy effort, easy pace. So put put little uh, pace handcuffs on yourself. Give yourself what you know your rough, roughly what your easy pace range is, and tell yourself, "I know that it feels really, really easy going downhill, but I'm going to stay between this pace and this pace when I'm heading downhill." Right. So start intentionally start your runoff at an easy pace and then continue at that easy effort throughout the entirety of your run, including on the uphill. And if staying in your easy zone on the uphill means you have to walk, so be it. That's fine. Like I said, the benefits for your aerobic development are not in the act of running. They're in where your aerobic zone is, where your heart rate, where your effort is. That's the aerobic development, not the act of running. The other option Let's say you continue to run too fast down the hill, knowing that you shouldn't get to the bottom of the hill. Instead of continuing to sprint onwards, stop, pause your watch, stop, take a minute, drink some water. If you have it, maybe do a little bit of dynamic movement, like hip circles or leg swings, kind of like give yourself a, a reset, a mental break, right? You just did your, your warm up down the hill. Now you've stopped for a minute. And after you've kind of collected yourself and reset your mindset, continue on at your actual easy pace, right? Yeah. Am I I an advocate for stopping on your run all the time? Of course not. But, you know, 
I understand the allure, the pull of the pace, right? The siren song of when the pace is fast and you just want to keep going. But be honest with yourself. You have specifically, and you, by you, I mean, I know that there are many of you listening out there who have done this exact same thing. This is clearly a problem. It's uncomfortable to finish every run feeling like that. There's nothing preventing you from slowing down except your own brain. So it's completely within your power to slow down. So like I said, my advice for that would be either be very intentional when you start about the pace that you're allowing yourself to run, or if you get carried away and run up fast down that hill, stop, reset, and then continue onwards when you know that you can trust yourself to run in the effort zone that you're supposed to run in. Remember, like, you're only shortchanging yourself on stuff like this. You know, we, there's no way looking over our shoulder, and that's the, kind of like the beauty and the curse of running, right? Like running, even if you run with a group, or even if you have a coach, or even if, you know, you have a really tight-knit running community, at the end of the day, your running is 100% your responsibility. Nobody is making you slow down or speed up. It all comes from the directions you get between your ears. Your running is 100% your responsibility. So, of course, we all make mistakes. We all do things that we don't know that we shouldn't do. But now that we know them, that we've learned them, identified the issues, found the way that we're supposed to be doing things, now we need to be honest with ourselves and tell ourselves, no, I'm going to do it this way because I know this is the correct way to do it. And that's how it should be with easy running, right? Nobody's making you run at your easy pace. You should do it because it's the best way to develop yourself as a runner, to develop your aerobic capacity, to develop your endurance, along with the sprinkling of fast running. But when you play that weird Strava pace game where you're just trying to run fast all the time so it looks good, or you're lying to yourself and telling yourself that that pace is easy when you know in your heart of hearts and your heart rate also says that it's not. You are only shortchanging your own development. Like I'm not saying this for anybody's benefit, but for you, you are the one who is control in control of your paces. You are in the one who is in control of slowing down or speeding up. And if you know that running at an easy effort is the best way to develop yourself as a runner and then throwing in that fast running every now and then, why would you continue to run too fast all the time? And that I think is worth exploring. There's a lot of ego and a lot of other stuff that I think is revealed about ourselves when we become runners. So I, I, and I'm honestly asking if you are, if you find yourself having serious trouble honoring your easy effort zone, honoring your easy pace range, whatever that pace range is, if you keep running too fast all the time, I would, I would seriously ask yourself, okay, what's going on here? Why is this so hard for me? And you might start discovering things about yourself. So it's always a good conversation to have. But like I said, the most important thing is that you are doing this for yourself because nobody else is going to do it for you. The final question today is the type of question that I basically started this account in order to answer. It is random and specific and actually like has a really important answer. The question is, why do I always scrape the inside of my left calf with my right foot as I run? Now, for you, it might be reversed. Um, for some people, it does affect both feet and both 
legs, although most people who experience this phenomenon, it is just one sided. It is just one foot that scrapes against the opposite leg and not both feet scraping against both legs. And you may not even have known that you do this until you went on a really muddy run or you looked down after a run and you noticed streaks of mud on the inside of your leg or you even maybe streaks of blood. Maybe you cut yourself uh, with your shoe and there's blood on the inside of your leg, on the inside lower part of your leg. Usually these streaks are found in the bottom third of you know your calf so basically from your ankle bone up to the that lower third part of your inside calf but depending on your gait it could even be as high as mid calf or even higher but that's where they those streaks are typically found so what is this what is going on is it bad if you do it this is usually caused by something that's known as heel whip and heel whip <laughs> is when as your foot, as your, as the foot, so you have one foot on the ground and your other foot's in the air, as your foot in the air goes through its gait cycle, the cyclical motion of running, it whips either inwards or outwards, like it flares out, right? So it's kind of like it goes through, it whips in or it whips out. And if it whips out, you don't probably don't even notice unless you take video or a picture and actually look for it. If it whips in, that's when you can get it striking against your opposite leg and either leaving a streak of dirt or in some cases drawing blood. So is this bad? Not necessarily. Many people have some degree of heel whip and like many things that we talk about, it's the dose that makes the poison, right? So everybody's natural variations in their body means they're going to run a little bit differently all the time. Their gait's going to be slightly different. They're from person to person, the biomechanics, just how their bodies are structured how our muscles are, how our tendons are shaped and how long they are, how our bones are, like all these things add up to each of us having a very unique in our own way style of running, right? So even though you can have 10 people who are running with technically correct principles of good running form, they all might look a little bit different because that's just how we are all a little bit different. So some degree of heel whip might just be part of your thing. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. Is it irritating? Maybe if you, if you bleed a lot, like might be something to correct. Um, the problem again is the degree of heel whip. And I will also note that heel whip is usually associated with weakness in the hips, instability in the, the hip region. So weakness, tightness in the hips, And you may only experience excessive heel whip when you are excessively fatigued, right? So you might not have a heel whip at all or very, you know, minor heel whip. It doesn't even touch the inside of your leg until you get really fatigued, right? So after, well, you know, the end of long runs, races, right? I mean, if any, a marathon does anything, it shows you where your weaknesses are (laughs) as a runner, because towards the end of a marathon, all your weaknesses will be on full display, form issues, all of it. So uh, you may not have heel whip issues until you become excessively fatigued, or you may have heel whip issues on every run that you go on. Do you necessarily need to do something about this? Not necessarily, like I said, it's not necessarily a signal that something is wrong. However, without seeing it, I cannot know that, right? There is, like I said, a an excessive degree of heel whip 
that is the product of another dysfunction in your movement somewhere else up the chain. The heel whip is the result of something else. Like a heel whip is not an independent thing. Like you can't have perfect, strong running form and then crazy heel whip. The heel whip is related to something else going on either in your musculature or your stabilities or just the, how you move through your gait, your actual gait cycle, the biomechanics of your movement, all of those things contribute to whether or not you have heel lips. So something you can do, easy peasy, recommended for, I swear most of the things that I recommend are make sure that your hips are strong and mobile. Having strong hips and mobile hips, doing hip strengthening work and hip mobility exercises will correct a myriad of minor and even moderate issues that most runners face. I cannot overstate the importance of having strong, mobile hips in your ability to run well, healthily, faster, all these things. Having strong and mobile hips corrects and prevents like a whole crap ton of running injuries, not just heel whip, knee issues, foot stuff, lower back, cool, like all these things. Um, having strong and mobile hips will be a huge benefit to you, even if you don't have heel whip issues. So that is kind of my thing. If you do notice you have heel whip, work on your hips. Uh, if it's a serious problem for you, like if you are, if you are routinely causing yourself to bleed, or let's say that you videoed yourself and you're like, wow, even I can tell that that looks really weird and not okay. Um, go see somebody, go see a physical therapist, go see a sports professional, somebody who is used to working with athletes to help address and correct the issue. Like I said, it's not like the heel whip It's that there's something else going on that's causing the heel whip. So if you've done all your hip work, you it don't, it doesn't, it's not overnight, like give it a time to kick in, you know, do a couple months worth of dedicated hip strengthening, you know, three or four times a week, use your resistance band and you know, do your hip mobility that you found on YouTube. And if it's not getting better, then it might go be time to go see a professional. Heel whip is, and honestly, like I said, sometimes heel whip just happens. When we get super fatigued, especially towards the end of races, especially towards the end of distance races, all bets are off. Our form, eventually, everybody's form starts to break down. If you've watched almost any marathon major, even the professional athletes at mile 25, for the most part, are showing some signs of fatigue, watching them going, how are they still upright? Oh my God, I, this is like, and how are they still running five minute miles? This person looks like they're about to fall down and yet they still keep going. So fatigue issues are super common for runners of all abilities, but having a strong everything can help prevent the fatigue setting in and causing those form issues. So that's what that is. That's what that is. That's called, uh, well, it's, it's, I don't, it's not called anything, but it's caused most often by a phenomenon called heel whip. And now, you know, and that's going to do it for me. Those are all the podcast questions I have for this week. This year, these were so much fun to answer. It's just amazing to me to have being able to connect with all of you, runners experienced or new, all of your feedback has just been like, it cannot tell you how much it warms my heart every time I get a message that said, I listened to your podcast and I really liked it and I really learned a lot. So don't forget, sticker goes up every Monday. Ask your running questions there. 
A reminder, I do have training plans available. I have some level one plans available. I currently have a base building plan that takes you from 15 to 30 miles per week. I'm working on a one that takes you from 20 to 40 miles per week. Excellent in preparation for your marathon training. And with that, I will see you next time. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Don't forget, you can always find me on Instagram at running explained or at my website, runningexplained.co. If you have a question you'd like to have answered, you can submit it in my stories every Monday or email me at elizabeth at runningexplained.co. That's E-L-I-S-A-B-E-T-H at runningexplained.co. Until next time, happy running. This content is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you have regarding a medical condition.